Tonight's talk is on anatta or not-self. I want to start with a poem from Pablo Neruda, the famous uh, great Chilean poet of the people. And this is from a book of poems, uh, fragments of poems from his last year of his life when he knew that he was dying of cancer. Is the sea there? Tell it to come in. Bring me the great bell, one of the green race. Not that one, the other one, the one that has a crack in its bronze mouth. And now, nothing more. I want to be alone with my essential sea and the bell. I don't want to speak for a long time. Silence. I still want to learn. I want to know if I exist. Y ahora nada más. Quiero estar solo con el mar principal y la campaña. Quiero no hablar por una larga vez. Silencio. Quiero aprender aún. Quiero saber si existo. Silence. I still want to learn. I want to know if I exist. It seems like a deep question of our spiritual search, no? What is this self? Do we exist? What does it mean to exist? How do we exist? Who are we? What are we? And I love how, how near the end of his life he wants to be quiet and to really study that question deeply. That's what we've been doing here. We haven't always named it that, but we are um, involved in this deep investigation of self or who we are or what we are. And Buddhism is somewhat unique in how it uh, approaches this question of the self. And we talk about anatta or not-self which really means that we don't exist as we think we do or as we think ourselves into being. I was thinking this afternoon about the famous statement from Descartes, I think, therefore I am. And it's sometimes said that he used I think as proof that he exists. But I was thinking maybe it's more prescriptive. I think... Therefore, I (laughs) exist as a thinking being or or something like that. He was one of those group of um, North European dudes who I think maybe thought a bit too much. I I tried to read a little this afternoon to kind of know what I was talking about here, and I think he thought too much. Maybe the modern version is this this uh, joke that I saw probably in the New Yorker. It looks like a New Yorker cartoon. And um, there's a man on his laptop, and he says, I Google myself, I get a hit, therefore I am. <laughs> <laughs> so that's our modern, modern version. <laughs> hmm. 
So I think this idea of not self um, is sometimes misunderstood. There's sometimes this fear or idea that um, we're going to kind of blink out of existence or um, some kind of scary scenario may be um, brought to mind with the idea of not self. And the idea may seem a little bizarre, but the experience itself is um, one of spaciousness or non-contractedness of heart and mind. So usually the experience isn't um, near, nearly as intimidating as the thought of not-self. Basically, we have um, so many ways of perceiving the world that come through our assumptions about the way things are, our deep views and beliefs about the way things are, that come often from living on a surface level or the conceptual level, which we've talked about quite a bit. And really, um, we use so little or we know so little of our minds and our hearts. We make so many assumptions about what we know and we're so sure that they're right. And one of the things that can happen in practice as we settle in and look deep more deeply is we start to see, first of all, that, that the, the terrain of heart and mind and body is much vaster than we thought. And that reality has many different layers, you could say, of, of the way things are. And that we often live on a, on a surface layer. And with practice, what we do is... Um, is we drop into other layers, you could say. It's all words, but we, 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 um, we try to purify our perception in a way that we can see more deeply the real nature of things or the deeper nature of things. So it really works, it reworks the way we perceive the world. And it happens through this connection with our experience. Dogen, the favorite, famous, my, one of my favorite <laughs> uh, Zen masters from quite a few years ago, um, stated famously, well-known quote, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be actualized by myriad things. To study the way, the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. I'm not sure about that word forget, exactly what he means. (laughs) But to me, to study the self is to, you could say, melt the contraction of self. And to forget the self is to be actualized by the myriad things. I looked up this word actualized recently to really try to get a, a, a sense of what, this, what he was talking about. And to actualize means to be made real. To forget the self is to be made real by the myriad things. I'll come back to that later. <laughs> I hope I hope I have time. Um, but I love the um, 
the deep embeddedness of that phrase or the non-separation or the deep interconnectedness of all things already touching on this flavor of not-self of the mind and heart that aren't contracted uh, into separation. So he says to, to, um, to study the self. So often people say, well, I really want to understand that self. Tell me, tell me what it is. I want to figure it out. I want to know about it. Really, um, that approach, I find, isn't the best one. I think the best approach is to look at self and how self is constructed and um, what is our experience of self. So to study the self, to go through the self, rather than thinking there's some place that we're going to get to that we can kind of go around and get to round self and get to not self in some other kind of place. It's still the same self. It's just a different understanding. It's still the same self. It's just the contraction's been taken away. I'm still answer. I'll still answer to Rebecca. Still pay the rent. So we're not trying to take away that uh, helpful sense of self or crush the ego. All that we're getting rid of is the contraction, the barriers the suffering. And so today I'm going to try to just, it's going to be um, a survey of a number of places that we've already investigated, but looking at them through the lens of not-self. And and I hope that they're practical suggestions, because I want us to... um, always be pointing towards seeing for ourselves in our own experience and not trying to understand not-self as an intellectual concept or an intellectual um, idea or understanding because it's on that level it doesn't change much. It might help to hear some understanding of not-self to help point where we look in our own experience. The French philosopher Henri Nouwen, I'm not sure I said the last name right, but Nouwen, you don't think your way into a new kind of living. You live your way into a new kind of thinking. (laughs) So we're not going to think our way into um, a deeper understanding. We're going to live our way into it. So one area that we've been looking at is uh, the afflictive mind states of grasping and aversion. So as we turn towards these mind states when they arise, what we often feel is a kind of contraction around the heart. And maybe other sensations too, but often the sense of contraction, perhaps in the mind, perhaps in the heart. And this contraction is a is a hardening, you could say, a, and a separating. It's it's grasping and aversion working to separate us 
from the myriad things, you could say, to separate us so, so that um, we get focused on, on what we need and want or don't want. So we see that grasping inversion has a strong story of self with it and this corresponding um, contraction or even, you could say, hardening of the heart. That's the purpose of grasping and aversion, actually, is the story of me and how I can get what I want in the world. So sometimes this grasping and aversion might be really strong mind states that, that last and, and um, that uh, we spend some time with and that um, get, can get quite strong and intense. And sometimes... Um, it's just blips in the mind. Just something arises, some, uh, something pleasant or unpleasant, some pleasant or unpleasant experience arises, and there'll just be this little blip of, oh, aversion, oh, grasping. So it can be anything from just blips to full-on attacks, which I'm sure you're familiar with. And the more um, you could say that we identify with grasping and aversion, the stronger then the sense of self is around it. And some folks have um, described times where uh, the meditation seems to um, rest in kind of a sense of flow, where really what's happening is the forces of grasping and aversion are in abeyance, they're... they're, um, not not so present, and uh, that so then we we see that the the flow of life of pleasant and pleasant and neutral can um, you can say can flow on unobstructed or uninterrupted <laughs> by the the this of of grasping and aversion, and um, usually when this happens in our practice, we love it. We love the peace. It's like, oh, what a relief. It's the relief. What we're really enjoying is the relief of grasping and aversion and the relief of the corresponding contraction of the heart. And the relief, you could say, um, from the burden of the self-creation that comes with grasping and aversion. So for a little while, we've given up micromanaging the universe. (laughs) It's nice to be on um, vacation. Of course, when that ends, (laughs) we have different feelings about it. Often grasping arises, right? And then um, this is what I want. I want that again. And um, we continue to explore. So when grasping aversion arises, we explore it. We, we um, turn towards it to understand um, its nature. Because when there isn't much mindfulness around grasping and aversion, all of this process deepens. The, de- the sense of contraction deepens. The sense of strong self deepens. But when there is mindfulness, the power of these mind states weaken. It's like we come out of the trance. We can come out of the trance. Grasping and aversion are like being in a trance, the trance of self. <laughs> and um, with mindfulness, there's the opportunity to um, 
come out of that. And then over time, um, grasping and aversion, they, they thin out a little bit. <laughs> they keep thinning out over the years, right? They, and they, there's more permeability, more flexibility, more information can enter rather than just the story of what I want. Grasping the version, very narrowing what I want. <laughs> and when um, the, the strength of these mind states weaken, it's like the blinders come off. And we see what the whole situation might call for rather than the narrowing of the self of what I want. And related then to grasping and aversion is feeling tone, understanding that connection and uh, pleasant, grasping, unpleasant aversion. And so we see how the self, you could say, is created out of um, feeling tone, reaction, and then the um, further um, strengthening of, of, of reaction. That's how, we, how it all gets um, created. And being mindful of re, uh, feeling tone, again, there's the opportunity to um, relax this process. It's like the time I mentioned, I think I mentioned it with the lawnmower when I was sitting in the hall here and the lawnmower started up and um, I went into a whole story about my meditation and how they were ruining it and how they didn't understand that <laughs> and how we should um, not have lawnmowers going during the sitting period and all this. And then when I realized, oh, it's just unpleasant and that all of this management going on in my mind around the sound of the lawnmower, all the story about me is just avoid unpleasantness. It was like, oh, okay, maybe it's simpler. <laughs> to just settle with unpleasantness. And so we, we start to learn that we can tolerate unpleasantness and then that cycle doesn't have to continue, the cycle of aversion and, um, and uh, craving and grasping and the self-creation. Of course, it's not all, uh, it's not... Um, It's not once and for all. <laughs> it depends on all the way the, the conditions come together in the moment. But we start to see the possibility that that can happen and start to have some access to it. And same with pleasant. We start to be able to tolerate that pleasant is going to end and that that's okay. And then that don't need to grasp, create the whole story of self and what I want and the congealing and hardening of the heart that comes through that process. So that's one way we we understand and work with self is um, working with grasping and aversion and understanding um, the hardening and the contraction that is part of uh, these mind states. Another way is looking at whether and how we identify with experience and non-identification with experience. So identifying with an experience means that um, some experience rises some, uh, in the six sense doors here in this uh, body and we uh, um, take it very personally, you could say. 
or we get lost in it, or we get lost again in our reactivity to it. So, for example, I ha- there's a knee pain. So on one level with meditation, I can uh, go towards the knee pain, notice the sensations, notice how they change, um, noticing it's not as solid as it seemed. But without mindfulness, what happens is I feel the knee pain, and then I start with the stories, right? Oh, my knee. Wow, it's going to get worse. I'm probably going to need knee replacement surgery. And I don't know if I can survive that. And, and then I won't be able to go on my walks anymore. I'd love to go on walks. I need to go on walks. <laughs> so <laughs> that's called identifying <laughs> with, the, with the knee pain. So getting, um, you could say, very involved <laughs> with the knee pain. Now, on one level, yes, it is my knee. And I do have to know how to take care of my knee. So that we don't nix that level. Um, But we start to um, access another level of non-identification where we see the knee pain as um, arising, uh, uh, um, sensations arising due to conditions, and that change as conditions change. Perhaps unpleasant. Or another example. Anger, so anger arises. Identifying with anger, we get lost in the story. What a jerk that person is and how we're going to make them pay for what they did. And then we may also have the feeling like, well, I'm an angry person and uh, I shouldn't be an angry person. People, spiritual people don't get angry and so uh, there's something wrong with me and and so on and so forth. (laughs) Identifying with emotion. On another level, anger arises. We see that it is um, a series of thoughts. It arises due to some, some causes and conditions coming together, maybe a thought. Um, we feel it in the body, perhaps, again, contraction in the heart, heat, and uh, maybe tense fist, <laughs> energy. Uh, yeah. It's not so personal. It's arising. It's arising, life arising. Now, on one level, it is personal. We've got to deal with it. <laughs> there is anger arising in this being, and I have to know how to work with that. So we don't nix that part. But, but we see that um, it can be simpler than all the complexity of the stories that we make up around ourselves or the stories that we believe. Thoughts. How, how often do we um, take our thoughts personally? So we have a certain kind of thought, maybe a negative kind of thought, and again, we, have, we judge ourselves. I shouldn't have that kind of thought, bad thoughts, bad person. Um, it's so interesting. I could say that over the years of meditating that I actually noticed, I don't know if that's true now, but for a long time I noticed um, meaner and meaner thoughts. It was because I wasn't um, uh, having to suppress them because I didn't want them in my story of who I was. It's because I didn't identify with them. They weren't a problem. They aren't a problem. They still arise. Um, It's just conditioning. I don't have to take it personally as some story about myself.
So in some ways we get, um, you could say we get simpler and simpler. That practice is about getting simple. It's really, even Jesse's going to understand this. It's about, (laughs) it's about subtraction. (laughs) Not addition. You know, we're so sure that spiritual practice is about addition. It's like we're going to get something, right? We're going to get more and more things. And it's really subtraction. We're going to let go, and we let go, and we let go. And what we let go of is is the complexity and the contraction and the tension and the stress, the, the added on dukkha. That's all. And it feels good. It feels better than getting more. (laughs) It feels like taking off a tight shoe. It feels like spaciousness. It feels like peace. There's a a famous sutra about Bahia, the Bahia Sutra. And... um, one time the, the Buddha was staying uh, near Savati in the Jetta wood. I think Greg uh, J- J- has mentioned this place, Anathapindika's monastery. And so at this time, um, there was a, a, I guess he was some kind of spiritual seeker, and he was called Bahia of the Bark Cloth. So perhaps he wore bark cloth. They did some strange things back in those times in the name of spirituality. But I guess you could say the same about us, so. <laughs> so anyway, he was very revered and um, respected and, um, and uh, you know, seen as a, as a one worthy of honor. But then one time he was uh, meditating and he had this thought. He's like, am I like on an arahant on my way to be an arahant like am i on the right path that's what he has really started to wonder and then um a deva a, an angelic being uh said bahi i hate to break it to you but um you're not really on the right path you're not uh you're not doing as well as you thought you were and um <laughs> so bahi is like well who can i talk to i need help and um the deva said go to the buddha you know, he knows, he knows what he's talking about. So Bahia um, headed on off to uh, find the Buddha. Um, and he came to a place where uh, the Buddha, well, he went to where the Buddha was staying, but they said he's out on alms round. So he goes off on alms round to find the Buddha. And so finally he sees the Buddha and his retinue um, on alms round. And um, he goes to the Buddha and he says, uh, teach me the Dhamma, please teach me the Dhamma. So that'll be for my good and my happiness for a long time. And the Buddha said, you know, this isn't the best time. We're going out on our alms round. And Bahia is like, look, um, you know, I just don't know how long I'm going to live. I'm feeling a little desperate here. Please, like, teach me the Dhamma. And the Buddha said again, look, we're trying to get some food for the day. <laughs> and um, Bahia said it a third time. He's like, please teach me, teach me. And so... There's this tradition, I think Michelle might have mentioned it, that if you're asked three times, you, you do something. So I said, okay, all right, bye, yeah, here you go. I got it for you. 
Here in Bahia, you should train yourself thus. In the seen will be merely what is seen. In the heard will be merely what is heard. In the sensed will be merely what is sensed. In the cognized will be merely what is cognized. In this way, you should train yourself, Bahia. When Bahia, for you, in the seen is merely what is seen, the heard is merely what is heard, the sensed is merely what is sensed, the cognized is merely what is cognized, then Bahia, you will not be with that. When Bahia, you are not with that, then Bahia, you will not be in that. When Bahia, you are not in that, then Bahia, you will be neither here nor beyond nor in between the two. Just this is the end of suffering. And it said that um, Bahia got it. <laughs> he got it and um, experienced a full, full release of, of, of suffering. And then um, soon after the Buddha departed, a cow with a young calf attacked Bahia of the bark cloth and killed him. <laughs> so so his, his premonition was right that he needed to get the teachings when he could. There's sometimes dramatic endings to these. Um. <laughs> but what I love about that sutra is it's, it's so simple, Right? None of the the entanglement and the micromanaging and the um, confusion, and it's just simple, just with what is arising in these um, six sense doors. Stopping before the 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 grasping and aversion and the confusion. Related to this non-identification um, with experiences is seeing um, or realizing deeply the universality of these experiences that arise. This helps us not to take them personally, not to identify with them. I remember one time when I was sitting in this hall and I was feeling lonely. And um, there was some self-pity story in the loneliness of poor me, I'm lonely. Um, so there was a strong sense of kind of identifying with that feeling. And then I just had this um, moment of, of getting that all over the world, right now, there were many, many people feeling lonely. And that all human lives, that nobody gets through a human life without feeling lonely at some time. It's, it's part of this experience. And that realization... Um, broke the identification with the, with the loneliness. It was just loneliness, and, and there was a kind of sweetness of compassion of being with it. And even some kind of sense of um, connection with all beings. So that sense of separation of me, um, lonely, uh, dissolved. It's so interesting when we get um, in, entangled in a deep, uh, uh, deeply entangled in, a, in an afflictive mind state. It feels like we're the only one who 
has ever, will ever experience that. It's so personal, right? And uh, so that's, that's that identification. But when that releases, it's like, oh, this is just life manifesting due to causes and conditions in this moment. It's not so personal. We're not the only ones that ever felt anger. All right, moving on a little bit. There's so much to share. The Buddha often in his sutras would uh, quiz uh, his audience, <laughs> often the monks. He would, uh, um, I think his questions were often rhetorical, like really set up so that the right answer would come, but <laughs> he would quiz them about different things. And so there are a number of sutras where he's quizzing them about um, what is self, what is not self, what can be taken as self. And so, one, so there's two criteria that you'll often see in these sutras for whether something is self or not. And the criteria is um, um, impermanent or impermanent and controllable or uncontrollable. And so he'll say, um, is the physical form, he often will go through either the six sense bases or the five aggregates for those of you who know what those are. So he'll say, is physical form permanent? Oh, monks? And the monks will say, nope, impermanent. And you'll say, is what impermanent to be taken as me, mine, myself? And no, uh, Lord, it is not. And then um, also the question will be around, it, can it be controlled? And, and uh, again, if it's, if it's impermanent or it's not able to be controlled, then we can't take it as me or mine. So we can look at this in our own experience. Impermanence. Often, um, when we look at the surface level of things, we see um, more permanence. You could say the conceptual level actually freezes reality. It makes things more stable and more permanent so that they're more easily managed. And when we get, um, again, to a deeper level, we start to see um, more and more uh, change. Or, or deeper level, or you could say when we get closer, more intimate. So again, using the example of the knee. So when my knee hurts on one level, if I'm, if I'm distant from that, it's, it feels like some kind of solid block. And it feels like it's kind of just the, staying the same. There isn't a sense of, of movement. But when I get closer and more intimate with the uh, pain in the knee, we start to see swirling, changing sensations that maybe increase or decrease in intensity. Sometimes there's even gaps. Yeah, there's pain gap, pain gap, or stabbing gap, burning gap. Um, and we start to see that it's much more fluid experience than we thought. And when we look at this whole self, we start seeing that it's a much more fluid experience than we thought. 
right? There's not a single one of you who hasn't noticed that. You can't spend uh, all this time sitting in the hall without noticing that. It's always changing. The mind, crazy, always changing. Body, always changing. So like where, the question then is like, if it's always changing, what are you going to hang your hat upon? (laughs) What are you going to identify as, as me or mine? Because it's so fluid. And if there were somebody in charge, there were this me in charge, wouldn't I be able to make it a bit more stable? Uncontrollability, so related. Uncontrollability. Shouldn't we, the Buddha would say, shouldn't we be able to control it if, 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 if there is a self here? So as we sit here and see the impermanence and see the uncontrollability of, of phenomena, of, of life manifesting here, we start to um, question who we thought we were or what we thought we were or how we thought we were. We start to see that if we rely on control, on controlling this experience, that again, right, contraction, we see the contraction again. And if we start um, relying on control, we see that that we are going to be fighting with reality. Because reality doesn't stop. It doesn't do what we want it to do. It keeps moving. It arises due to causes and conditions, many causes and conditions can't control them all. And the more deeply we get this, the more we consider, you could say, and this is all, it's pretty wordless. It's not, I'm using a lot of words, but the more you could say the heart and the mind start, consider the possibility that we might want to let go a little bit of this, or we're going to get pretty severe rope burn (laughs) as things are pulled along by life, right? So we, we start to see, or we start to learn how to um, flow. Back to that, that experience that I was saying some of you have had of that experience of flow. We learn that. This is from Jacques Sho Kuang. Everything is changing. In one way, it's complete freedom. It's said that there are 6.5 billion instances in 24 hours. This is what the Buddhists say. In one sec- second, there are 7,000 instances. So you get the sense of the level of change that we're talking about. <laughs> And as we are sitting here, they are continuously coming and continuously going, just like when I strike my stick on the floor. Bam, 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 bam. Isn't that wonderful? This is complete freedom. 
We see ourselves as firewood going to ash. We see ourselves 30 years old going to 60. My God, look out, here comes 70. We see ourselves only in the linear, the sequential moving towards an end. We don't understand that within each 24-hour day there are 6.5 billion instances of life, death, life, death, gain, loss, gain, loss, dark, light, bodhisattvas, clouds, cars, you and me. All the dharmas are appearing and disappearing continually out of the beginningless beginning and the endless end. This is really fantastic. It gives us such a very wide, liberating view that to even call it Buddha Dharma or anything else diminishes it. Ah, spaciousness. Letting go. Not self. Another place that I enjoy uh, investigating self and not self in practice is around uh, intentions that Greg gave instructions a couple of days ago. So sometimes people will say, okay, so I'm not my body, I'm not my thoughts, I'm not my emotions, but what about the decision maker? I make decisions. Is that who I am? Is that... uh, 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 There's got to be somebody there, right, making decisions. So sometimes we'll get questions like that. Well, this um, will counter that assumption. (laughs) So on one level, yes, you can keep making decisions, and (laughs) we do have some sense of agency, so we're not trying to take that all away. But we're trying to understand... um, how action happens... So we assume we're in charge of um, decision-making, but when we look really closely, how does action happen? So I remember one of the first times I saw this rather clearly. I was um, in my room over there, and um, cold arised, arose. So I noticed um, cold. Then I noticed the thought, I should get a sweater. Then I noticed the intention to move to get the sweater, And then the movement happened, got the sweater, and put it on. And then afterwards, I was like, where was I in all of that? Because what it was, was a chain of cause and effect, right? A chain of conditioning. And um, what we might identify with as self is just a, making a decision is just a piece in that chain of conditioning, the piece of intention, that um, connection between thought and action. So we start to see what we call our lives as this unfolding chain of conditioning of cause and effect. And again, so this is a different level of seeing when we get close and intimate and um, when the mindfulness, um, as Greg had, with the when the gaps start closing, and we can see um, the the we can be mindfully with the moment by moment experience. So enjoy, enjoy that exploration of um, yeah, this mind factor of intention and.
seeing for ourselves what, what, how that unfolds, how action unfolds. Again, not thinking about it, but to actually see it in process. And one last place that we can look at um, not-self is uh, the Buddhist um, word mana. And it's often translated as conceit, but a better translation might be comparing or measuring. And this is the um, mind states of... of, of uh, taking some uh, experience of us that's impermanent, but using it as a basis to compare ourselves to others or to some ideal. And in um, Buddhism, there's three kinds of conceit. So we usually think of conceit as I'm better than. But in Buddhism, it's better than, worse than, or equal to. Because they're all comparing. And you can see in that comparing that there's this strong story of self, who I am, who I am in relationship to others. And there's a sense of separation, definitely that, again, that separation into um, the smaller space of of me by um, comparing to you or to something outside or seemingly outside. So it's interesting because we often think of feeling better than others as conceit, but I find it interesting to to name feeling worse than or not good enough or all of that as as a form of a mana or conceit, it, the same as feeling better than. It somehow it loosens the weight of it to me to see it in the same camp. This mind state can even arise here at the meditation center. In the secret lives of yogis, I hear about (laughs) competitions. Who can stay in the hall the latest? Who gets to the hall the first? I don't know how much this happens on these shorter retreats, but the three-month course, oh, wow. We, you know, we hear about all these competitions going on. Like, or you might be, yeah, like who can get to the hall the first and people will know who gets there at what time and, and they will try to get there earlier. <laughs> or even you're sitting here, right, and you're, and you're, um, you're not going to move this period, right? But your neighbor, they moved twice. And like, ah, okay, so I'm a better yogi, right? (laughs) Or your neighbor doesn't move, doesn't move at all, and then like you need to move, and then you're like, oh, um, right? Happens all the time. I remember in Burma one time, so at the monastery we've talked about, I was on retreat, and um, uh, when we have lunch there, you all go down at the same time um, to the lunchroom, and then we chant before we eat. And so we all start eating at the same time. 
And so it's obvious who eats fast and who doesn't, you know, by like who leaves. You know, here we stagger in, right? So nobody's keeping track. Um, <laughs> but uh, there it's really obvious. And, um, you know, we can have this ideal that eating slow, more slowly is better practice, right? And like who can eat the slowest might be another yogi competition. <laughs> and... Uh, so I tend to have a lot of energy for investigation early in the day. I'm, I'm a morning person, and um, by lunchtime, things are starting to wane. And um, I'm not so interested. So uh, my mindfulness, you could say, is at a lighter, lighter level. So one day I was leaving the um, lunchroom, and, and everybody knew who I was. No, no privacy here. Um, and so <laughs> I was leaving the, I was the first person to leave the lunchroom. <laughs> So I, I'm walking out of the lunchroom. I'm aware that I'm the first person that everybody knows who I am. And, uh, and um, so I have the thought, oh, you know, they're going to think um, poorly of me because I left the lunchroom early. So mana, right, feeling worse then. But then it was so interesting to watch my mind um, really kind of slick. You could say mana has some slick... Uh, salespeople working for, for it. So mine says, well, actually, I'm a better yogi than them because they just don't want to leave the lunchroom and they're making their meal last really long because the afternoon's really long and they don't want to face it <laughs> because, because they're like, that's it, lunch is it. You know, you have a little ginger tea at dinner time, but that's it because you're on eight precepts. So it was so funny to watch my mind do that, right? It was like, this is what we do, right? We don't want to be worse then, so we, we, we come up with better then and uh, make up some story. Just, they're both arbitrary stories about who we are and what we are and, and, and attempts to protect ourselves. I, f I found it quite um, entertaining. So it's um, great to bring mindfulness to mana when it arises. You can name it mana or concede or comparing, measuring, both superiority mana and inferiority mana. Sometimes it's better to start with the superiority because the inferiority mana can be so sticky that like I'm not good enough, I don't measure up, I can't do this, all of that, right? That, that, the, that the superiority mana can be... Um, sometimes more accessible, like when we find ourselves a little puffed up that we're, um, like, better. <laughs> I remember when I was writing this talk, I got this letter in the mail for my health, car insurance. It says, you're a perfect driver. <laughs> and it was so funny because I felt inside, I went, puff, puff. <laughs> I was like, like, who cares, really, right? But, but Mana was like, oh, I'm a perfect driver. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I, I identified with it in those moments. And so what we love is we love the puff, puff of superiority conceit, right? There's this feeling of inflation. <laughs> but what's really interesting is to check out the heart when that's happening, like when we're feeling better than somebody else. It's like when we check out the heart, there it is, that contraction of self. There it is, that hardening, that separation. 
And so if we, if we start um, learning, um, because it's painful, the pain will teach us, <laughs> that the suffering teaches us, it's like, oh, maybe that isn't so great after all. You know, look on the surface level and it's just puff, puff. But when we get <laughs> closer, it's like, oh, maybe that's not so satisfying. And then um, that learning to decondition the superiority conceit, then we can transfer it more easily when the inferiority conceit comes up because we've already gotten practice. And so the inferiority comes up and we see, oh, that's a story. That's a story about me taking certain conditions and um, making up a, a me, a whole me around it. I could say more on that, but I just want a few minutes to talk about um, two other practices that are uh, great practices and not self. And those are um, what we call the, uh, the foundational practices, but really are the foundational and the fruit of our practice, generosity and ethical conduct. So both of these um, are practices in coming out of the, um, the story of me and uh, joining the, the, the interconnected world around us. Pema Chodron um, calls generosity or says that generosity ventilates the claustrophobia of self-absorption. I just love that. It ventilates the claustrophobia of self-absorption. So basically, generosity helps us start um, to learn to loosen that sense of barrier or separation or claustrophobia. That's, that's it, too, of, of um, being in the garage of the self. <laughs> and it's part of why generosity is such a powerful practice is it, it, it is a practice of opening the heart. It's a manifestation of coming out of the enclosed, closed, enclosed um, place of self-preoccupation. As some my bumper sticker I saw said, it's one seven billionth about me. <laughs> <laughs> We start to learn that, right? So when we when we're not when we're um, holding on, there's that sense of it's all about me. <laughs> and when uh, generosity is practiced and cultivated, um, yeah, that sense of separation between us and others uh, dissolves. That sense of the 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 strong sense of me starts to dissolve. The edges start to melt. But of course, there's different ways we can do this. So we can, we can explore generosity and how um, self and not self might manifest within that practice. So a number of years ago, quite a while ago now, um, I lived in a house and um, I liked to feed the birds. 
and uh, I like to drink my tea in the morning and um, watch the birds. It's, I still do it. And uh, so I had this bird feeder on the porch, and um, sometimes uh, the birds would, um, the, the bears would get the bird feeders. Um, yeah, I remember one time one bear had a bird feeder in its arm, and it was, you know, loping along on three with my bird feeder. And uh, bird feeders are not cheap, for those of you who know about feeding birds. They're expensive. So one time I'm noticing the birds out there, and I'm drinking my tea, and I think, huh, I wonder if I've got my money's worth out of, out of giving, you know, the bird seed to the birds, right? So I was like, huh. That doesn't seem like real wholehearted giving there. <laughs> you know, a lot, of, a lot of self in that one, right? And so then I thought, let's try a different story. So I was like, oh, the bird food is my gift to the birds. And I enjoy um, sharing what I have with them. Felt much better. You know, there was starting to be kind of the opening up of the, of the heart. And then my mind went further, this time without my prompting. And it was like, oh, there's just me and the birds each doing our dance or our place in this universe. Um, and uh, I happen to be giving the bird seed. They happen to be eating it. But we're just fulfilling our roles in the world. And that one felt the most free because the sense of me being the giver uh, um, was uh, dissolved. It was more just the dance that we were doing together. So, so we can even explore within generosity these different flavors of, of how we give. I don't have a lot of time for Sila. But again, it's, it's, it's the sense that we open out of, so with ethical conduct, we open out of um, just our needs and wants and, um, and see the world um, through a wider lens and see the world and see other beings and see our impact on other beings, other people, other beings. And part of our commitment to non-harming is um, comes from that place of, of not being separate or not making ourselves separate from other beings. The poet Sonia Sanchez says in a little haiku, let me wear the day well so when it reaches you, you will enjoy it. To me, that has the flavor of um, both generosity and sila, that we um, wish to wear the day well so that it's an offering to others. And again, you can feel the, the spaciousness of that, having also that flavor of anatta. So that was our um, journey through various ways of looking at anatta, um, that understanding of not-self. Perhaps ways we can cultivate it, or places in our practice that we can um, look at to, to 
deeply understand, you could say, the contraction of self and start to um, touch and understand the sense of spaciousness that comes when um, that contraction dissolves or isn't present. And the flexibility and the peace that comes, that we taste, that we acclimate to when that, um, the contraction melts. So let's sit for a couple minutes. So letting the words float away, remembering that the insight comes from connecting moment by moment with life manifesting in this heart, body, and mind. No pressure with ease, letting life teach us not needing to go out after the truth, but letting it arise. Simply here and now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.